Amen, amen. As you take your seat, Matthew 27, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You got, should have one there in the seat bag in front of you, or the words will be on the screen. But Matthew 27, verse 15. Matthew 27, verse 15, as we continue this series, King Jesus. In 1543... 1543, most everyone believed that our planet Earth was the center of our solar system, or effectively at that point, the world or the universe. And most everyone believed in 1543 that the sun rotated around the Earth. But in 1543, a theory was published by a man named Nicholas Copernicus a name some of you are familiar with, a mathematician and astronomer. He published a theory which was highly controversial. It threatened the long-standing traditional view that the sun rotated around the earth. His new published theory became known as the Copernican system. And at the heart of his theory was that the sun, not the earth, was the center of our solar system. That the earth and all the other planets moved around the sun. Well, his theory has greatly shaped and changed the world of astronomy, what we know about our solar system today and our galaxy and the universe in which God has created. But in the years to follow, after his theory was published, not everyone, as a matter of fact, many people were not on board with this new theory. For example, the Catholic Church was not in favor of this theory. The Catholic Church believed that it was heretical and contradicted Scripture. And at that time, the Catholic Church was nearly synonymous with the state. Thus, to go against the church was to go against the state. To go against the state was to go against the church. Hence, we live now in a country of separation of church and state for this very reason. So heresy, in effect, at that time, was like breaking the law, punishable by fines or imprisonment or maybe even death. See the Reformation for an example. So to believe in and potentially argue for the Copernican system, this theory was an act of heresy. It was like breaking the law. And this was the case for decades. In 1633, nearly 90 years after Copernicus published his theory, the Pope and his chief inquisitor were still cracking down on those who held to the Copernican belief system. And so in 1633, 90 years after the published theory, they went after a very famous and influential Italian physicist and astronomer named Galileo. Galileo was ordered to turn himself into the holy office in Rome to begin trial for holding the belief that the earth revolves around the sun. Thus began a very famous trial, one of the most famous trials in history. And within that trial, evidence was shown, arguments were presented, interrogation unfolded, all leading up to a verdict. Would Galileo be guilty or innocent? Innocent or guilty? 
Well, again, the church had decided the idea that the sun moved around the earth was an absolute fact of Scripture that could not be disputed, despite the fact that scientists had known for centuries that the earth quite literally was not the center of the universe. So despite his best efforts, Galileo's technical argument could not win the day, that he was merely just tossing it out for discussion instead of actually believing it. And so on June 22nd, 1633, the Catholic Church handed down the following order. We pronounce, we judge and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself suspected by this holy office of heresy. That is, of having believed and held the doctrine, which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world. And that it does not move from east to west. And that the earth does move and is not the center of the world. Galileo would spend the rest of his days in house arrest. And it wouldn't be until about 25 years ago that the Catholic Church would come out and publicly declare that they were wrong in the matter. There was something about trials, especially famous ones, that I believe we are fascinated with. Generally speaking, some of us could care less, but some of us are really, really fascinated with trials. Anytime there's a famous trial, at least here in the United States, and we've had our plenty here recently, when we have these trials, many people are just glued to the news. People want to know the evidence. They want to hear the arguments. They want to watch the interrogation. They want to watch the back and forth. They want to know about the judge. They want to know who was there in the courtroom, who was outside the courtroom, who wasn't there. They want to know about the jury. We are fascinated with trials. But here's the thing. We don't want to know just the evidence. We don't want to know just the arguments or just the interrogation or just the facts about the people in and around the trial. What we really want to know, what it's all leading up to, is we want to know the verdict. It's not working, Bill. We want to know the verdict. In other words, what's the judge's decision? What's the jury's judgment? Guilty or innocent? Innocent or guilty? What's the verdict? Well, there are famous trials like that of Galileo's trial. We know many, but there is no trial as famous or like that of the trial of Jesus. And so we've been looking at key events within the last few hours of Jesus' life in this series. And what I want us to see in all of it is the kingship of Jesus. I want us to see his dominion, his power and his authority, his rule and control throughout these events. Jesus knew exactly what was to happen to him. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was in complete control. He was leading all things and all people to this particular moment in history. As Jesus said in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, freely of my own will. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was persistent. He was purposeful. He was precise in everything. He was driving the narrative. Thus, while it appears to be the most weakest moments of his life, it's actually his power 
his authority, his supremacy, his kingship, his dominion on display. For example, when you read John's gospel and you get towards the end of the trial, we see that Pilate had Jesus flogged. And we know about this in Easter series. We talk about it a lot, what that flogging is. The gospel writers didn't have to expound on it because everybody in that day knew what a Roman flogging was. It was a brutal, excruciating beating with a whip embedded with things like bone or glass or rock, things of this nature. A severe beating. Matter of fact, it was so severe that many people who experienced it died in the process. And so Pilate was hoping that this flogging would satisfy the crowd. But we know the story, it didn't. And in John's gospel, after Jesus is flogged, the soldiers then begin to mock him and humiliate him and beat him over the head. This is when they throw that robe upon him. And this is when they take those thorns and they make a crown out of them and put them on his head. And after this, in John's gospel, Pilate then brings him out. He's just been severely flogged, and he's dripping in blood. In many cases, his flesh turned inside out, and he is just almost probably barely able to stand. And he's there, and Pilate brings him out and says, behold him. It's as though... We were to clear the stage, go outside and beat somebody to a pulp, and then bring them here on stage and said, look at him. That's the situation. Behold him. And the way John writes it, he says, when the religious leaders saw him in that moment, they began to cry out, crucify, crucify. So after that, Pilate brings him backstage, if you will, into his praetorium, into his palace and his home away from home in Jerusalem. And he asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Remember, Jesus has just been brutally beaten. Probably still has the purple robe on him, the crown of thorns on him. He's just, he, he, he's bleeding right there in the praetorium, just standing there, and he has no answer. And so Pilate then says to him, You won't speak to me? What, you're not going to say a word? Don't you know that I have authority to release you? Authority to crucify you? Jesus says to him, you have no authority. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now that is a massive declaration by Jesus. Because we already know from John's gospel that Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus earlier in talking to Pilate referred to his kingdom which is not of this world. A kingdom that in a way oversees this world. And what Jesus, in essence, is saying, though Pilate cannot see it, is that, Pilate, you have no authority at all unless I had given it to you. Because remember what Jesus says. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. How can you do that? Because I have the authority to lay it down. 
Where does that authority come from? He continues in John 10, 18. This charge, this authority, I have received from my Father. So here before Pilate, the question is, is who is in control? It's Jesus. Listen, Jesus is like a guy at a poker table who knows everybody's cards, who knows everybody's secret tell. He even knows what the next card's going to be dealt. And there's not a soul present who knows it or can see it or can sense it. Jesus is in control of the cards. He's in control of the table. He's in control of the players. He's in control of the audience. He's in control of the building. And not a person present has a clue about it, nor could see it coming. Again, Jesus is, if John is following this chronologically, he's standing there, bloody and beaten, a shell of a king. Struggling to stand, perhaps struggling to breathe or to talk. And he's telling Pilate, all authority belongs to me. You have no dominion here. I'm the one who's given it to you. You're just a dog on a leash who thinks he owns a patch of grass. You know nothing, Pilate. All your Roman glory, your education, your accolades, your accomplishments, your family, your house by the sea. You're everything. You have nothing without me. You're nothing apart from me. I'm the one calling the shots. I'm the one in control. I'm the one in authority. I'm the one driving the narrative. Listen, this is why Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. He said, listen, we declare God's wisdom. We just sang about it. A mystery that has been hidden. That God destined for our glory before time began. Listen to what he says. None of the rulers of this age, Pilate included, understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Nobody could see it. On the surface, it would seem absurd. Yet Jesus is all in control. Thus, while it appears to be the most weakest moments of his life, it's his power, it's his authority, it's his supremacy, his kingship, his dominion on display. And so that first week, we looked at the arrest. And then last week, we looked at Peter's denial. Today, we're looking at the trial. And next week, the crucifixion. And then we'll wrap up, obviously, with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But today, we're going to look at the trial. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 27, verse 15. There's not a more famous trial like this. Nothing quite like this trial of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 15. And this is what we read. Now at the feast, talking about the Passover feast, the governor, who is Pilate, he was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Verse 16, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas was potentially a murderer, somebody who was against Rome and had tried to Uh, to overthrow Rome's power and whatnot. And so he's this famous, notorious prisoner called Barabbas, verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want? Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? 
for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. Verse 19. And besides, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, listen, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Now why persuasion? Because if you read another gospel account, I think it's Mark's, that the crowd goes up to, to, to Pilate knowing that this is the custom to release a prisoner. And it appears the way Mark writes it that they're going to ask, why don't you just release Jesus? This is a mess, just release him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus and then to destroy Jesus. So the governor, Pilate, again said to them, which of the two do you want? Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Kill him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd and he said, listen, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And so all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Now you'll notice what we just read is the end of the trial. It's the scene revolving around the verdict. And I focus on this passage out of all the passages around the trial intentionally because the entire trial, just like all trials, has been leading to what we most want to know, the verdict. And here's what's remarkable about the verdict. It reveals the irony, the great cosmic twist, or should I say the great cosmic revelation What's really going on here? And in order to see it, you and I have to step back. We have to look at everything. We have to look at all scripture. We have to look at all history, the beginning, this moment in the fullness of time. We have to look at history, how it's been leading to this very moment. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, before the judgment seat. But here it is, the great revelation. The great irony, the great cosmic twist. What's really going on is that Jesus is not on trial. You and I are on trial. Humanity is on trial. And the one sitting on the judgment seat is not Pilate. It's God himself telling the world, the verdict is this, behold my son, the verdict is yours. That's what Pilate just said. Behold Jesus, it's your decision. Do with him 
what you want. The verdict is yours. But let's set the context first. How do we get here to Jesus before the judgment seat of Pilate? Again, when you read all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get a good picture of the trial of Jesus. And we go all the way back to the arrest. You remember Jesus leaves the upper room with the disciples. There's a conspiracy against him. He knows it, very similar to the conspiracy against David hundreds of years before. And Jesus then with his disciples, they leave Jerusalem. They cross the Kidron Valley, as John tells us. They go to the Mount of Olives. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, a very popular place for Jesus. A very popular place for King David back in the day as well. And they're there in the garden, and it's a famous scene where Jesus prays and he's pleading, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And then finally Judas shows up with his mob, and they arrest Jesus. And Jesus, after that, first goes to the religious court. It's nighttime, and they go to the house of Caiaphas, and many people believe the house of Annas as well. Many people believe they lived in the same compound. Annas was the former great high priest, and he is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who at this time is now the great high priest. Now, for biblical law, Annas should have still been the high priest, but because of Rome and legalities and installments, Caiaphas was the high priest. But for the Jews, in their perspective, it was like a dual high priesthood. Annas still right up there in authority and in influence. So they take Jesus to Annas and then to Caiaphas to get their stamp of approval. And after that, the whole religious court gathers to discuss and to examine. And it's clear what their conclusion is. He's guilty and deserves death. After that, at daybreak, they take Jesus to the secular court, to Rome. And you say, well, why? Why not keep this a religious matter? Why does Rome have to be brought into it? Because at this time, long story short, Rome had stripped the Jews from carrying out capital punishment. Rome had final say and must authorize such punishment. If they want Jesus dead, Rome would have to do it. So then at daybreak, they go to Pilate. And Pilate's in Jerusalem this time. It's the Passover feast. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem. Usually Pilate is on the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea in his little palace on the, on, on the ocean front. But now he's in Jerusalem in his praetorium, his home away from home. Now Pilate is a governor of Rome. In the same way, kind of like a governor is today for the United States. They oversee a large area of the country. Herod, who Jesus would go to after Pilate, is kind of like somebody who oversees a county. He's not as high up as a governor. He's down on the food chain, so to speak. And so they go to Pilate first, and then Pilate comes to the conclusion, this business is not under my jurisdiction, at least not immediately. It's Herod's problem. Pilate sending Jesus to Herod would be like the state supreme court saying, this should be handled at the county level. Take it back to the county. And so that's what happened, and Jesus appears before Herod, and it's a, it's a mockery. Herod makes fun of him. Jesus doesn't say anything. He mocks him. He has a good fun with him. And then finally, he sends him back to Pilate. And throughout it all, throughout all of this scene, before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the religious court, before Pilate, before Herod, before, throughout it all, 
Evidence is presented. Arguments are made. There's interrogation. There's back and forth, back and forth. And Jesus, throughout it all, is treated terribly. He's spit on. He's blindfolded and beaten up. He's made fun of. He's mocked. He's humiliated. He's shamed. He's abandoned. But here's what's interesting. Up until the verdict, in which we just read in Matthew 27, when you take all the gospel accounts together, what is established throughout the trial is that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Christ. He's the Anointed One. That Son of Man is a title that goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. All scriptures have been pointing to him. He is the one who is to come in the line of David. He's the king that we've been waiting for. He is the Son of Man. But what's also established is that he is the Son of God. Again, another title that reveals that Jesus is the only human being who is of the nature God. No other human being before him, no other human being after him. Jesus is unlike anybody else. He's not just the Son of Man, he's also the Son of God. And we'd establish that he is the King. And we establish that he is the truth. And even we saw here in Matthew 27, what's established is that he is a righteous person. Innocent. Having done nothing wrong. And this establishment of who Jesus is leads to the ultimate final verdict, as all trials do. And it takes place before the judgment seat of Pilate. This seat was a raised speaker's platform, which which proclamations were read, which citizens would stand on to appear before officials. Think of it like a judge's seat in a courtroom, in which the person would stand right there before the judge and before the courtroom and before the jury. This, in essence, is what the judgment seat is. It's the seat of the judge. And what is the verdict? What's the verdict? Well, ironically, Pilate, in a way, makes it clear. He's the Christ. Behold him. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. The one you've been waiting for, the one you've been praying for, the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, God incarnate. Behold him, the verdict is yours. The verdict is, it's your decision. And that verdict is clear, not just here, but all throughout the trial. If you go all the way back, especially like in Mark's gospel, Mark 14, we, we read about the high priest saying, what is your decision? In Luke 23 and here, Pilate makes it clear that they were the ones who brought Jesus to him. That he and Herod found nothing wrong with him or the situation. Pilate repeatedly tried to talk them out of killing Jesus. But he ultimately says, the verdict is yours. This is who he is. What do you want to do? What's your decision? And Pilate eventually delivered Jesus over to their 
will. It's as the people said here, his blood be on us and our, our children. That's what we want. Behold him, we see him, now kill him. To make this more ironic and clear, Pilate presents them with a choice. Barabbas or Jesus? Again, this was a custom for Pilate to do this around Passover feast to let a prisoner go. It'd make the crowd happy. It'd kind of show them that, hey, I'm in your corner. I care about you. And here's this notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So Pilate says, whom do you want? I'll release anyone for you. Who do you want? It's your choice. It's your decision. And they said, Barabbas. Don't miss the irony. Barabbas is of Aramaic origin. His name is. His name means son of Abba. Abba is the Aramaic term for father. Quite literally, in Aramaic, Barabbas literally means son of the father. Do you want Barabbas, this son of the father? Or do you want Jesus, who is the son of the father? We'll take Barabbas. Literally, the verdict is, it's yours, your decision. Behold him. Now, what will you do with him? What do you want? And this verdict brings me back to my point, the great cosmic twist or revelation. Jesus before the judgment seat, the irony of it. Because in many, many ways, Jesus is not the one on trial. We are. Humanity is. And the one sitting on the judgment seat is not Pilate, it's God himself. And it's God proclaiming to the world, behold my king for you. What's your decision? What's your judgment? And of course we know what the religious crowd and the people did with Jesus as we read here. They in essence answered death. But it wasn't just that crowd. All of us, like sheep gone astray, all of us were right there with them. All humanity in one voice, one heartbeat, shouted, crucify. In one loud, united voice, in Adam, all of us declared, let him be guilty. Guilty of what, Pilate would ask? He threatened my self-image. He threatened my autonomy. He threatened my way of life. He threatened my religion. He threatened my money, my job, my family, my life, the image that I created for myself. He threatened my truth. He's guilty of being king. Of being who he is. The I am incarnate before us. So come, let us kill him. Let us do away with him. Let us decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. Let us make for ourselves an image 
for us. That's what we want. I remember in school, they made us watch a movie to study, and since then I've gone back to watch it, and it is a fascinating movie. It's the movie called 12 Angry Men. Some of you have seen this movie. came out, I think, in the 50s. What's interesting about the movie is the whole movie is focused on the jury, these 12 men. And the whole movie takes place in their hot, cramped room for deliberation. And at the beginning, they all file in there to the deliberation room, and they do a quick tally of the votes. Who's, who thinks this person that is on trial is guilty? Who thinks he's innocent? Eleven of them say he's guilty. But one of them says, not guilty. He wasn't convinced with the evidence. He wants to talk about it a little longer. But at the end of the movie, those 11 have flipped. And the 12 decide the evidence isn't there, or at least it's not strong enough. He's not guilty. The question is, is why? why? Why create this movie? Why focus only on the jury Well, because the director, the writer, is wanting the audience to see the power of persuasion and the workings of psychology. But within that, I believe there's something else the director or the writer is wanting us to see. And you have to step back. You have to see it all. But that, in a way, it's not that 18-year-old boy who's on trial. The jury is on trial. This is very clear when you watch the whole movie. Every one of them, for different reasons, is on trial. Their envy, because of their pride, their selfishness, their racism, their foolishness. The jury, though they don't see it, they're the ones on trial. So to speak, it's not Jesus on trial. It's you and it's me. Here's the Christ, the King. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Word become flesh. The fullness of God in human form. The creator and sustainer of everything. The righteous one. The Lion and the Lamb of Judah. The great one. The I Am incarnate. Here he is. Behold him. Now what's your verdict? Because the verdict is yours. What's your judgment? What's your decision in here? Receive or reject him? Believe or disbelieve? If you go all the way back to Psalm chapter 2, it's a psalm that in a way God is presenting his anointed one to the world. Basically, in essence, saying, this is my anointed one, so why are people conspiring against him, and so on. But the psalm builds up towards the end, and in essence, in a way, asks, what is your decision? And in the psalm, he says, be wise and be warned. Kiss his son. Kiss the anointed one. Embrace him as your king and lord and savior. Or else the father in heaven will be angry. 
and your way will lead to your destruction. Here he is. This is the one. The verdict is yours. Receive or reject, believe or disbelieve, kiss him as your Lord and Savior, as king, or kill him. Now here's the wonderful, wonderful, brilliant good news. Our sin put him on that tree. In our sin, we declared, we have no king but Caesar. In our sin, we are guilty. In our sin, we were right there with that crowd. But thank God, like Peter's denial, Jesus already knew that. And yet, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Remember, he's driving the narrative. He has all the authority, and he chose to still lay down his life for us. He still chose to declare, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And we know from Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him in our place, to kill him for us sinners. And why do that? Love. So that those who would receive him, as John says in John what? He would give them the right to become his children. No longer still attached to the flesh. So that those who would receive him would not die in sin or for sin or because of sin, but would have a new life in him, through him, and because of him. So the verdict is yours. What's your judgment? And I'll close with this. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared before Thomas. And in essence, he said, behold me. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Or as the father would say, you better kiss my son as your king. Or I will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For my wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. With heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite our team forward. And for some of us, we just, today's the day of our salvation. We recognized internally that we have never repented and believed, surrendered lordship to Jesus, the King. And today is the day of our salvation. For others of us, we've, we've surrendered lordship to Jesus. We are following Jesus, but we never followed through in baptism. And we need to make that decision and, and follow through in obedience of baptism. For others of us, maybe it's a, you just want to come and pray and sit at the feet of Jesus. But make no mistake about it. God is sitting on the judgment seat and saying, Behold my son, what is your decision? Don't disbelieve, but believe. Repent and believe. Surrender lordship to this king who laid down his life for you and me, even though we denied him. Even though we were there together crying, crucify this is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. So come to him, believe. 
And for those of you who want to join the church, in just a moment as, after I pray, that would be the time for that. You want to join the fellowship and say, we want to just join this community of believers. We want to serve. We want to give. We, we want to be a part of this family. Whatever it is, even as I pray, you can come forward. Whatever it is the Lord's leading you to do, even as I pray, you can come forward. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your anointed one, the King. And you have presented him to us and declared it's your verdict. What's your decision? For those who receive him as Lord and King, Lord, you have blessed them and have caused them to be born again, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. But Father, there are some I'm almost sure of here today who have not surrendered lordship to Jesus. May you bring them to the point of faith today, to repentance and belief, to your glory. Whatever it is you're leading us, others to do, may we be obedient in that as well. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I'm gonna have you stand with us. You have a decision to make, you come forward, make that public.